A few years ago, my family uh, went on a camping trip with some friends to Vermont. Perfect trip on a campground where there were bathrooms and showers. Still proper camping, tents, campfires, swimming in the river. Uh, was not glamping, though my wife may have slightly preferred that. Uh, gave me a chance to show off a few of my tent assembling skills, campfire cooking skills, fishing skills. Anyways, we, bought, uh, we brought our four-year-old and one-year-old with us, and it was just absolutely magic. The second night we were there, it looked like it was going to rain. Now, I had, I had thought to bring a tarp, so I'm just thinking I'm, I'm, I'm killing it. Uh, I did not think through the best way to use this tarp, though, and I proceeded to place the tarp on the ground and place the tent over top of that. So, uh, I can't remember exactly the reason why, but the, the early the next morning, it was Sunday morning, and I had to drive down from Vermont, southern Vermont, back to church to preach some poor bit of planning on my part or whatever. And so by the time I started back up, um, which by the way was after I had run out of gas because I wasn't paying attention to the the gas meter, um, a lot of time had passed and I did not realize that it had started to downpour. Uh, And so I walk into the campsite seeing like flooding all around thinking, oh, I've totally nailed this. i least had a tarp and had this all set up. That tarp, for anyone listening who already know, who knows camping and knows how the story is probably about to end, that tarp should have gone over top of the tent. What the tarp essentially did was keep the ground from soaking up any water and caused it to sort of collect really nicely under our tent, which wasn't exactly fully waterproof. So I walk in and unzip the tent to see my wife and two girls freezing, huddled in maybe a few centimeters of water absolutely miserable. I love camping and love going into the wilderness and was so excited to turn my family on to camping. Needless to say that next night we found an area Airbnb and I paid some penance for that. Um, But I love going into the wilderness to experience like probably a lot of you, just detachment, like a, a small controllable amount of uncontrolled beauty. But sometimes, like my family in the tent, like true wilderness is thrust upon you, right? That was about, there was a bit of wilderness there, but it was for the most part controlled. And then all of a sudden, the elements can kind of push in. This is what I want to talk about for a few minutes today. It's just the subject of of wilderness, the in-between space, the space between where you've been and where you will end up. Because right now, I think we're in an unexpected wilderness, a wilderness that's been thrust upon us. We've been driven there. There is a new surge, it looks like, of of COVID-19, a disease that has taken the lives of hundreds of thousands and radically disturbed the lives of millions. There is the disease of systemic racism that continues to spark flare-ups. There is the disease of polarization, tribal politics, excuse me, misinformation that's infected seemingly everything, actual medical diseases and very sickly systems. But then there is this greater uh, dis-ease that we're all feeling, this uncertainty about what's coming next, about who we are becoming as humanity, as a nation, and as a church. There's a dis-ease about how this moment we're in right now is going to play itself out. And I actually think we're feeling it more than ever. 
In the beginning, there was a sense of, I don't want to say excitement, but there was adrenaline. And uh, at this juncture, as we're actually possibly even going backwards when it comes to certain restrictions, there is a, a new sort of fresh dis-ease that I find is beginning to settle in, at least in my own soul. It feels as a culture, and specifically as the church, we're being driven into the wilderness. And because we're all connected, we're all experiencing it in some kind of way. The wilderness, or in in Hebrew, this word midbar, is so important in the scriptures, and there's a lot to say about it. It's essentially ground zero for where transformation happens. One writer says, if you desire change, if you hope for anything new to come from within, you must enter the wilderness in some sort of way. The wilderness narratives in the Bible center around the great wilderness story of uh, Israel, if you're familiar with the scriptures at all, being rescued from slavery in Egypt and being led to the promised land by way of the wilderness. And it's there where God wants to form them. It's there they are tempted to walk away like from God and the path of life and to resist becoming who God was helping them become. And fast forward to Jesus, we're going to read this in a moment, uh, or as actually was just read, is led into the wilderness to mirror what Israel went through in the wilderness and ultimately succeed where they failed and to put on display all sorts of things about who Jesus is. There's a lot to say there as well. But these stories, one of Israel in the wilderness, this Hebrew people, and then Jesus mirroring that story, they stand at the center of so many other wilderness moments and motifs throughout the Bible because the wilderness is where we go to hear from God because wilderness, that space in between bondage or in the beginning and the promised land is where we live over and over and over again. So for a moment, let's go back and look at that text. I wanna read that again, even though it was so beautifully read. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. So the first chapter of Mark takes us back to the moment of Jesus's baptism, that moment when the spirit descends on him and God kind of claims him as his own beloved son. We see Jesus being affirmed, and we've talked about this a lot before, as God's beloved son, even before he's preached his first sermon, before he's taught any like brilliant sermons or parables, before he's disrupted the establishment or healed anyone. The point is that That Jesus, um, the thing to pay attention to is that before Jesus has done any meaningful ministry, um, he has been affirmed in who he is in God. The same can be said of us, that we work from blessing, not for it. The point is that being and becoming a child of God, which is a, a really a technical term in the scriptures, is not something we earn. It's not a reward for doing good deeds or believing the right things. A child of God is who and what we are created to become. What happens next in the story, though, helps us make sense of how we live into this calling. This is who we are. Paul says, let us live up to what we have already attained. How do we grow into our child of God selves, our true selves? 
who we were made to be. Mark tells us in this, again, super abbreviated version where Matthew and Luke, other gospels, accounts of Jesus, uh, outline the temptations in detail. We read that Jesus still, I don't know, dripping wet, is driven into the wilderness. For a 40-day period, he's tempted by Satan and surrounded by these wild beasts. Jesus' time in the wilderness is the transition point. It's the bridge between this baptism and the beginning of his ministry. Now, real briefly, the temptations that he's confronted by um, are not... uh, the temptations he's confronted with are not obviously evil. So one, he turns, uh, there's this temptation to turn these stones to bread. Jesus, use your power here. You're hungry. He's hungry. Nothing wrong with eating. I don't know, in a world full of chronic hunger, like why not? The second one is uh, go up, climb up on the temple uh, and leap from the pinnacle of the temple and trust basically based on this awful um, quoting of scripture from the devil that God will save you. Uh, So it's this idea of basically like testing God basically saying like, well, in a world of like cynical, uh, people who are cynical to religious claims, why Jesus would you not shock and awe people into believing? Three is you can take over the kingdoms of this world by way of trusting Satan, by way of, of a power over in a world of slavery and war and oppression and a disregard for life. Why not impose a justice that does that by a, by a top-down sort of power, by a power over. Now, that's a really quick flyover of these temptations, and there's a lot we could get into here. But I want to point out that the temptations are a test of his loyalty to the Father who has claimed him as his beloved son. Of all the different categories we could put those temptations in, and all the different ways we could talk about them, this is the overriding picture. They are a necessary part. These temptations are a necessary part of discerning how Jesus will see himself and how he will go about his calling. Maybe we could say it like this. Will Jesus's life and ministry be shaped by God's will or by human appetites and aspirations? Will it be shaped by shortcuts? whether it's food, where there's nothing wrong with eating or enjoying food, but will we like engage that shortcut towards like an unholy sort of satisfaction or a lesser than satisfaction? Will he take the shortcut to trust? Will he take the shortcut to faith? There are no shortcuts though, as one writer says, to any place worth going. There is this passage in Exodus 13, 17. This is that first wilderness story of the Israelites in the wilderness. It's a text that rabbis have argued over over for for centuries. The passage tells us that after Pharaoh let the children of Israel go, um, like set them free from slavery, they fled across the Red Sea. God did not lead them by way of the northern route uh, through the land of the Philistines um, into the promised land. This would have been, by the way, way closer and way shorter and a much easier route. The argument uh, that the rabbis are having basically is what to do with a particular word in that verse. It's the word commonly translated, although. And the verse goes like this. God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. So what rabbis have argued over is the fact that the word can also mean because. So if you'd allow me to riff on this for a moment, if it's because, 
God doesn't lead them along the northern route because it's closer and shorter and easier. God leads them instead into the south, into the depth of the desert. Does God intentionally choose the more difficult landscape? Like there's an argument to be made that God does this all the time. It actually seems to be God's way. Like we we have to take the route that is not easier. We take the hard way so we won't be tempted to take the shortcut that is turning back, the shortcut of retreating to the very bondage that we were rescued from. That was the Israelites' temptation as they grumbled and moaned in the desert. They knew that when they had been, like, when they had been places back in Egypt, that they could at least count on a regular meal, that at least in that place they knew what to expect. But in the wilderness, all they had was uh, this thing called manna. If you're unfamiliar with the scripture story, it's basically, we actually don't even know what it is, some sort of maybe bread-like substance that appeared only for a day. Uh, It was something that God used to help them to just trust him every day, daily bread every day. The Israelites kept grumbling and complaining, clearly did not taste very good, kept looking for shortcuts all the while God was leading them across difficult terrain in a way that they would never be willing or able to retrace their steps and go back to bondage and slavery. How many of you, like this is your story in a season of, of growing and stretching and learning to surrender and trust all over again, you run back you forget. You say maybe it really wasn't that bad. Maybe God leads them into the wilderness and takes them the slower route on purpose. God drives them into the wilderness, carrying them relentlessly into a deeper experience with the one who loved and set them free. See, God's way is not around the wilderness, but through it again and again and again. Jesus in his wilderness story is similarly driven into the wilderness. Again, in Mark 1.12, there's that word in the Greek that basically just says he was like propelled or forced into the wilderness. Sometimes we engage the courageous act of stepping into the wilderness ourselves. Sometimes we choose to fast. Sometimes we choose to like step out and engage that because we know it's good for us. But most times, especially as children of God, we're led there. And so the, if I had a title to my message, it would simply be, I guess, like don't resist the wilderness. This moment of wilderness is helpful because we are reminded of so many things, our lack of control. This is where we can learn to let go, where we get stripped in some ways of our competence. Our ego can get challenged. We encounter temptations to our identity and what we say we believe. I know this is all really exciting stuff. Jesus encounters the devil in the wilderness in this primitive setting because it's, it's only in the absence of power and pleasure that we have like day in and day out in life that they become temptations for both him, Jesus, and us. Who do you trust? Jesus is like just wet from being told out of his baptism, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Israel had just been rescued from slavery and saw the walls of water held back. They had been saved by grace. You'd think they would trust God no matter what. 
no matter what comes, no matter who's in office, no matter how things unroll, no matter where the business is, but they don't. The wilderness helps us face the idols of pleasure and the idols of power that we all have. The wilderness is also, not. I feel like this is like the most negative talk ever. The wilderness is also a place of discovery, discovery of like who we are, the good and the bad, yes, and the ugly, who we are becoming and who God's inviting us to be. In the wilderness, you experience, if you're taking notes, you experience disorientation, which helps us wipe the slate clean, refocus. If you've ever been like coming out of disorientation, it's amazing how you see things differently all of a sudden. In the wilderness, we're humbled. It says Jesus was hungry. We read about the Israelites in uh, Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, uh, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone. This is the verse Jesus quotes, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's care, hear this, please. God's care, God's fathering of us includes humbling us. It included humbling the Israelites so they would not think that their power and their resolve had come from themselves. In the wilderness, you also experienced challenge. Again, we read Jesus was tempted, which is much more like the word, our word for tested. Jesus is given the opportunity to choose to obey and serve his father rather than satisfy his own appetite or build his own reputation or create his own kingdom. Disorientation, being humbled, and being challenged are critical ingredients to discovery. The wilderness is a place of discovery. So church, let's not resist the wilderness because it's here. It's here where God speaks the loudest. I want to end here. The word wilderness in the Hebrew, again, this word midbar, has the same root um, for word, like, like the word of God, word. And some of you are asking right now, Andrew, no more words, why do I care? But maybe wilderness and, and word, like capital W word, are linked because wilderness is where we encounter truth. Wilderness is where we hear a word from God, about God, and about ourselves. Don't resist this moment. In Hosea, um, uh, another passage, another uh, book of the Bible that's talking about um, wilderness in a different sense. God's heart is broken over his people who are to be a blessing to the world, who have turned away, who are trusting in other gods and other systems and other ways of life. They've forgotten and betrayed the love of God. And this is God's response. Hear this. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will, I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God's posture is I'm going to lead them out. I'm going to push them in. I'm going to drive them here. I am going to lead them the long way because I love them. Because I love them. Jesus, right, after resisting the temptations and while still in the wilderness, we read that angels came and attended him. Like you're not alone in the wilderness. If God's driven you there, if the spirits led you there, if the angels are there, whatever that like may look like are there to attend. 
oh, well, well, then this is actually more, more even comforting than we may think because a God who is fathering us, shaping us and refining us in this moment of dis-ease, if, if, if we're aware and awake to this God moving in these ways, then we have way more to look forward to than to be scared of. Stop, slow down. Become aware of your aches and your pains. And I encourage us, church, in this season to discover who we are becoming. I want to invite you just for a moment, just to um, to close your eyes and to kind of pray along with me for a moment. I'm going to ask a few questions. And these are questions you may have heard us ask before. If you're part of the team here at Sanctuary, we ask these questions a lot about the culture of our church. But the culture of our church, right, we've seen will affect the culture of the people that we interact with, the streets and the world that we live in. But the culture of our church is set first and foremost by the culture of our hearts. So we have vision for who we want to be. But what's actually happening right now and in this moment of dis-ease, in this wilderness that I think in some way so many of us are in, Maybe we don't want to own that we're in. I was talking to a friend yesterday who's just feeling like who's going through a real hard time on top of all of this existential ache that we're all feeling. Had something really, really tragic happen. I asked him how he was doing. He's like, oh, you know how I am. Just trying to avoid it, get through it, not think about it. We'll be all right. And I just thought, no, 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 this is a moment. In that moment to evaluate, all right, what's happening in my heart? To allow the wilderness to ask us questions, to God, to ask us questions in the midst of this. So here are these questions. If you want to close your eyes and just kind of ponder for a minute, like what in this moment of, of dis-ease is actually really good? Like where have I just been, been faithful and awake and alert and aware to the things of God, to the things of love, to the things of life? Where, where in this wilderness place am I being invited to... Um, build disciplines and build a, build a life there, pour gas on that flame. What in my heart is confused and needs clarity brought to it? Where am I, am I disoriented and I don't know how to become undisoriented and I am just grasping for shortcuts of satisfaction and shortcuts to power and shortcuts to control instead of trusting? What's broken Wilderness will reveal quickly what is just broken. I say I believe this. I say I want this. But good Lord, there is a gap. Lord, would you be the bridge? And what's just missing? What in this moment of in this moment of, of a wilderness do I, I need to build? I need to make? I need to ask God to come and, and, and put a foundation in place because there's a person that God's inviting me to become. Because there's, for those of you listening in that are part of our church, there's a church that we are being invited to become. And so in this place of wilderness, as the world is experiencing a wilderness, that we might be a, a light and a guide to help people through. Lord Jesus, we pray. God, that you um, would help us, Lord, to trust you, to follow you, 
into the wilderness, into trust, onto that temple mount, into trust. Follow you, Lord, to the mountaintop, into trust. Pray this all. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to do something different in our service at this moment. We're going to invite you um, to take communion. And uh, that's not the different part. What we want to do is actually take communion together. Um, And so most people, I think, when they think about faith or trust or obedience, they think it begins with what we must do. But it actually truly begins with what God has done. And so we are going to remember together what God has done. To remember his love, his forgiveness, his sacrifice, the freedom that comes with life with him. And so uh, what's going to happen is going to be a link that's going to come up on the screen and a little countdown. And so you can click on that, type that in. It should be in like six different places right now, this link. And we're just inviting you to jump onto this Zoom call where myself and one of our leaders are going to take five minutes tops to simply uh, be reminded of what we do when we take communion, why we do this, and to actually take together where we can actually see some faces. If you're part of a home church uh, and you're doing church at, uh, you know, in a gallery or outside right now uh, or in somebody's home, um, this would be the moment as the uh, broadcast ends to go and to take communion together and follow along with the liturgy. For those of you who won't join us on the Zoom or aren't in home church right now and you're going to head out, we're just grateful to have you with us. And uh, I pray that we as a community can um, serve you well in this season. So peace be with you.